Acts chapter 2. Turn once again with me in your Bibles uh, to Acts chapter 2. We've camped out in this chapter a couple weeks, and this will be our last week in Acts chapter 2. We are now, uh, for those of you who maybe have been in and out the past couple weeks, we're now several weeks into our study of this book, Encouraged, I Hope, and Empowered, I Hope. As we've thought about why the ascension matters, as we've been reminded that God's plans will never, ever be frustrated, as we have considered why the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost mattered then and why it matters to us today and why it does something for us today. Remember, this book is called, as most of your Bibles, my Bible included, says it's called the Acts of the Apostles. But really, in these first two chapters, we have been witnessing not so much the acts of the apostles, but we have been seeing what God has been doing because of Jesus, through His power, the power of the Holy Spirit, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And we've been reminded that He's calling a new people and a new community that they might bring Him glory. We've looked at some big chunks of Scripture. Today we turn to kind of a smaller, briefer passage, and hopefully that will translate into a briefer uh, sermon and service as well. I know that's what some of you are hoping. Um, so turn in your Bibles to me, with me, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, the very tail end of our chapter. Listen as I read, this is God's holy word. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I want to begin this morning by just thinking for a moment about what makes your family unique. What makes your family unique? What are those things that if we found out about in the Henry family, or in the Laramie family, or the Jesse family, that we would just chuckle at? I remember when our, uh, when our two families came together, Ann and I, of course this happens in every marriage, Uh, When two people come together, they bring two experiences and two pasts with them. And I remember the first time I had a bowl of cereal, uh, a bowl of cereal, I think it was Cheerios or cornflakes, and I took out a bottle of honey and I started putting honey all over. And Anna thought that was the oddest thing, that I would put honey on my Cheerios. Like, doesn't everybody do that? Doesn't everybody put honey on their Cheerios? But no, she thought that was something that was particularly unique about uh, the Hitchcocks. The Hitchcocks like to put cheddar cheese on their spaghetti. I don't know, is that a normal thing? That's something that we like to do. What are the peculiar, particular things that make your family unique? Maybe unique family traditions. 
kind of a fun thing to think about. Oh, Steve's back there stretching. I thought he was raising his hand to answer. I was about to call on him. Peter writes to the church. He writes to the church about the church in his first letter, the book of 1 Peter. And he says this. He says, you are a chosen race. Speaking of the church. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And those of you who maybe grew up with the King James version of the Bible might remember how the King James version translates that verse, and particularly one phrase within that verse. It says, you are a peculiar people. We don't see that anymore in our modern versions, but I like that word. I've preached on that passage before, 1 Peter chapter 2, and we focused on the word peculiar. I like the word peculiar. I like thinking about God's people as being peculiar. Because there is something about God's people, about the gathering of God's people, about the church that is unique. We are unique, not just positionally before God in our relationship to Him through Jesus Christ our Lord, but we're unique in the way we carry about our lives, in the things that are a priority before the world. There is, and there ought to be, increasingly so, something odd about the church. Well, Luke, this morning as he is describing this baby church, he reminds us of who we are and of what we are to be about. There's a lot of ands in this passage. I realize those aren't there originally. This is an English translation. But did you notice all the ands? And they devoted. And all. And all who believed. And they were. The whole passage is essentially a description of the church, of what they were about. It's a snapshot of a church in its infancy. An infant Christian community being formed just as Jesus hoped it would be formed, just as Jesus instructed his disciples to lay it out and to form it. Now please note that it is not the beginning of the church. This is not the start of the church. It's the start of the new covenant church. But God's people, God's set apart people to worship Him began long ago when God called Abraham and said He would make a great nation out of him. That's when God's people began But this is, here in Acts 2, this is the start of a new people, a new community, made up of Jew, made up of Gentile, and loyal to the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. And so in some way, not in a fully formed way I recognize and you recognize, but in a significant way, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, is to be what the church is to look like. This is what the church is to look like. It's not perfect. We're going to see as we continue to walk through the book of Acts that the early church even is far from being perfect. If you've read the book of Corinthians, you know that the church is far from perfect. 
But here what we do see is we see that its purpose and its mission is clear. And I think it's here for us, this description, in order that we might, in a sense, never forget. In order that we might be recalibrated, re-centered around who we are to be as a church. Because if we are collectively about these things, devoted to them, as the Apostle says, literally being strong towards them, then we are about what Jesus wanted us to be about. So as we walk through this passage, it's pretty clear that there are four priorities. Four priorities for the church. Four things that have come about as a result of these folks being gripped by God's grace and filled with His Spirit from on high. And they may, not, they may not be revolutionary to us here this morning, but when you think about them, as we meditate on them, they are countercultural now as they were back then. And they were what made the church the church. And so while there are certainly individual applications that we can gain from a passage like this, this passage primarily is one that we collectively think about, that we corporately think about and apply. It's an opportunity for us to think about our life together. And as we who sit in this room, our Ascension Presbyterian Church, as we desire to be faithful and to grow, I want us to think about these areas. I want us to think about what we're doing well in, what we're weak in that we might be who God desires us to be. And so let's walk through these four priorities with four truths for us to think about this morning. And the first one is this. A faithful, spirit-filled church loves to study the Word together. A faithful, spirit-filled church loves to study the Word together. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. As one commentator wrote, the Holy Spirit opened up a school with 3,000 kindergartners. Right? These people had just been converted and suddenly they begin devoting themselves to knowing who this God is. Now think about this for a moment. Before anything else is, is mentioned about the church, notice that it's not the food pantry. It's not marches of activism. It's not simply being nice people that the church is to be about fundamentally. Of course, all those things are good. All those things are important, even necessary for God's people to be a part of. But they all follow a foundational commitment that the early church had and that the church of Jesus Christ has had for all time. And that is they love to study His Word. And of course, this is how the church grows. By sitting at the feet of the world. This is how the kingdom is built. By exposure to the Word. 
And this is not just knowing things about God, but knowing about or about how we are to live. But this is about enjoying. We talked a little bit about it in the discipleship hour. Enjoying what it means to enjoy God. And to be part of that fellowship and that love that the Trinity invites us to be a part of. That they have enjoyed for eternity past. See, all other things in our existence, in our life together, fall behind the fact that first and foremost, we are a place of teaching and we are a place of learning. And we've got to admit that maybe not us here, maybe not us in the Reformed world, but certainly in the Evangelical Church, a lot of times we are susceptible to the temptation that we've got to be all about doing. That there is this constant pull, and I even feel it, that we need more activities, we need more programs, we need more ministries. Now again, don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying that activities or ministries or programs are a bad thing. But none of those things can trump the fact that we need to be about knowing God through His Word. Or specifically, as Luke describes here, knowing the apostles' teaching. And what was that? What were the apostles' teaching? Well, the apostles didn't have what you have in your laps. They didn't have the completed canon of Scripture, but they had the words of Jesus ringing in their ears. They had the oral traditions of generations upon generations ringing in their ears. And they had the person and work of Jesus, even as he talked to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, opening up the Old Testament, all these stories and all these things and all these ceremonies that they had known about for generations upon generations. And now, because of Jesus, all these things are blossoming. And they're becoming alive, and they're seeing why they were there. Because everything finds its place in Jesus. Peter had just proclaimed from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, that Jesus is the Lord, the one who came from the presence of God Himself in the line of David and now sits at God's right hand. And these truths, of course, were at the heart of the Gospel. But it wasn't just these truths that were the apostles' teaching. It was the whole counsel of God. And that's what the book of Acts will say in Acts 20, 27. That's what they were learning about. So these new, spirit-filled believers were hungry to use their minds, to use their intellect, to learn, to grow, to go deeper. Who is this God? What has He done for me? That's where they began. So the challenge comes to us, are we this kind of church, one that is devoted to learning more and more of who God is? It's one of the things, one of the reasons that we have created and birthed this discipleship hour is because we are to be about teaching. Can we be accused of teaching and learning too much in this church? If we can be, I don't know that that's a bad thing. But certainly that's not the only thing, as we'll get to in a moment. But of course, there's a, there's a personal application for us here. As we think about God's Word, what, what is the role of God's Word in your life? That's always a good question to ask ourselves. 
Is God's word like the English monarchy? You know, it's there, but it really doesn't hold much authority in my life. I mean, I like it. I give credence to it. See, the grace of Jesus and the Spirit of truth given to us as a result of our faith in the Son of God, it ought to ignite us to be learners. To be learners. That's the first thing that we're to be about as a church. But there's a second thing. And it's this, the Spirit-filled church loves one another. A Spirit-filled church loves one another. And that's the picture we get here in Acts chapter 2. There was a movie a while back, I think 10 years ago or so, called Ladder 49. Does anyone remember that movie, Ladder 49? No. I think John Travolta was in it. That's why you don't. That's why you don't know it. Um, it had a great line in it. Ladder forty nine did, and it's the line was this: "A bond forged by fire is never broken. A bond forged by fire is never broken." It was a very cool, memorable, tough guy thing to say, especially in a movie about firefighters. Now you understand where that line comes from: that a fire. Uh, a bond for, for, forged by fire is never broken. But I love that line, and I love thinking about it in relationship to the early church. And even to the scene that we have witnessed at Pentecost as the fire of the Holy Spirit, the quote-unquote fire of the Holy Spirit, has descended upon these people, and suddenly what's happening? A bond is being created. A bond has been created that as it begins to work itself out, it is not easily broken. Luke says that these new followers of Jesus committed themselves to the fellowship. The fellowship. Now we hear the word, we're, we hear the word fellowship a lot, and I think because we hear that word a lot, it just, it's kind of blah. It really has no meaning. We, we think about fellowship and we think about cookies and we think about casseroles. We sometimes talk about fellowship uh, kind of in, just in a Christianese way, that, that fellowship is just the, uh, the Christian way of saying hanging out. Jim and I are going to go have some fellowship. That means we're going to hang out. But the fellowship that's described here in Acts chapter 2 is something so much deeper than hanging out. Something so much richer than cookies and casserole. Some of you know that the English, some of you know that the Greek word that this English word comes from is koinonia, which comes from the word koinos, meaning common. And therefore, fellowship literally means to share in common. And what were these new believers? What were they 
sharing in common. As they devoted themselves to the fellowship, what were they sharing in common? Well, there's two ways to think about this, I think. There was a fellowship that they were receiving and sharing in common. And this this has to do with what we talked about in our discipleship hour. For those of you who were here, we, we spoke about the Trinity and we talked about how we share in the fellowship of the Godhead as the overflowing love of God between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that has existed in eternity past overflows to His people and we are invited into that fellowship, into that communion. 1 John 1.3 says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship, our koinonia is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And then I pronounce to you At the end of our worship together, that pronouncement that Paul gave to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 13.4, where he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so the first thing that they're sharing in common is the amazing truth of the gospel, that God has given you himself that God has given His church Himself in order to enjoy forever. Let that sink in. Let that soak in. But then the fellowship also that I think is spoken about here, and it's spoken about explicitly, is a fellowship that gives See, koinonia is related to the Greek word that means generous. And so it's appropriate that there was this sharing, there was this depth of fellowship that was far from being convenient, that was far from surfacy. This was a fellowship that was costly, a love that was strong. As as Luke describes this early church, they were selling their stuff for each other, to give to those who had need. And this was likely because a lot of Jews had traveled, remember, from all areas of the empire to be there at Pentecost, and then something incredible and amazing had happened to them at Pentecost, and they don't want to go home. And so they're just there in the city. And they have need. And these believers are saying, well, we'll fill it. Stay. Worship with us. Learn with us. Speak about this with us to all who will listen. See, that's the kind of fellowship that grace creates, extravagant generosity. Anne and I have been the recipients of extravagant generosity. It's so humbling. And yet so beautiful. And I remember when this man who invested in me, who paid for my whole seminary education and all of my books, thousands of dollars, and he said to me at one point, that's a good investment. That's a good investment. It's the best money I've ever spent. See, that's what fellowship is is giving and investing. The question always comes up about this passage. 
that, well, is this some form of, of Christian communism? I mean, is the Bible saying that the church ought to all, we ought to pool our money and have one account and live communally? A lot of people in the history of the church have thought that way, but without going too deeply, we can say no, this is not Christian communism. The Bible is not here uh, prohibiting private property. We have instances all throughout the New Testament of Christians, of godly people still owning their own stuff. Even later in the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira, a story that we'll get to, they own some fields and they're selling them. People still had private property. This was a voluntary, extravagant, extraordinary giving. And you know why? Because they felt responsible for each other. And I think that's a good way for us to think about it. They felt responsible for each other in this new community that was being formed. Now, I'm confident that we in the church, that we think this way about our biological families. And it's right and it's biblical for us to think this way about our biological families. I'm responsible for my parents as they age, as they need more and more of my help. I feel that responsibility. You feel that responsibility. Some of you are living that responsibility. But did you know that as Luke describes this infant church, As he describes the followers of Jesus in this book, four times he calls them the saints. Five times he calls them collectively the believers. Twenty-three times he calls them the disciples. Twenty-two times he calls them the church. And twenty-five times he calls them brothers. And you can bring in sisters. And why does he do that? Because he's making the point that the church is a new family. That to some degree, not to the same degree, but to some degree, as you feel responsibility for your family, you ought to feel responsibility for one another. For those in this room who have joined together in this Fellowship. It's a challenge for us. We have our reasons. We have our excuses. I have my reasons. I have my excuses. I'm an introvert at heart. It's too scary at times to get involved. I fear what people are going to think. People's perceptions. We live in a hands-off kind of society. We're simply too busy. I got enough issues. I got enough to deal with with my own family. And then there's always the, the risk. This this could cost me. This could hurt. See, the Bible challenges us again to think about what fellowship looks like for us. What sharing in common looks like for us. And it's easier to say, well, it 
It was different back then. It was different in this early church. They didn't, it wasn't like it was today. I read a quote from one of my former professors who wrote a book on Acts, and he says it was not easier in the first century. I read this to you because he knows more than me about the first century. You believe him more than you believe me. It was not easier in the first century than it is in the 20th to come together and to stay together in genuine Christian community. There were no fewer distractions and no fewer temptations towards selfish, aloof individualism, protective of one's privacy. It's a challenge for us. It's a challenge for all of us. And let me get real practical. One of the ways that we see in the book of Acts uh, fellowship happening among God's people was through food. Isn't that interesting? Through food. Through hospitality. Through being in homes. Verse 46, we read, Day by day, attending the temple and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous Hearts. Now, there was an aspect to this breaking of bread that was worship, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But there was also a certain aspect of this breaking of bread that was simply sharing meals together. I've been reading a little bit about this, about this issue of food and meals and hospitality, and I came across a New Testament scholar who wrote this. He said, it'd be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century. That's kind of technical, but mealtimes were far more than occasions for nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. That's great to think about it. And one need only look at the life of Jesus. Even look at Luke's description of the life of Jesus in his gospel. Luke's gospel is full of stories of Jesus doing what? Eating. Being in people's homes. Another writer comments on this. He says, Jesus didn't run projects. He didn't establish ministries. He didn't create programs or put on events. He ate meals. And in fact, Jesus has, Jesus was eating and drinking so much that they say of him in Luke 7.34, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and Sinners. See, there's an aspect of our fellowship, our love for one another, being intertwined with food. And so I just ask you, how how are those things, how are those things part of your life? I've talked about hospitality before. I don't want to beat you up about hospitality. Community groups are a great way to do this. I know many of us spend at least a couple days a month in each other's homes, breaking bread together, having a meal with one another. Oh, that we all would commit to that kind of life together. Because that's what grace does. Grace creates fellowship Let's go on to the third, 
The third truth for us to think about, and these last two are briefer than the first two. The third truth is this, I think, from here from Acts chapter 2. A spirit-filled church loves to worship. A spirit-filled church loves to worship. Here is where I validate you getting up early this morning and sitting here in these chairs. Verse 42, they were devoted to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They were praising God. There was a formal, there's a formalness about their worship. At this point in the life of the church, they were still going to the temple. We don't know why they were doing that. They certainly weren't going to the temple to offer sacrifices, but probably to be part of the prayers that were uh, at the temple. Maybe they were going to the temple to preach and to speak to those on the steps and then those who came to worship and who didn't hear about Jesus of Nazareth. But there was this formal gathering for worship, for prayer. The prayers were devoted to. But there was also this informal Like what we just talked about. Being each other's homes. Fellowshipping with one another. Eating meals. Breaking bread. Doing projects together. And it has to do with the church being an organization, yes, but the church is also an organism. And so if you're participation, if your life at Ascension is just merely this one hour, I encourage you to do more. Not because I want you to be busier, but because the priority of the church seems to be that those who love God's Word commit themselves to one another. They commit themselves to worship in all its varied forms. And this is not some ho-hum filling a square. This is because I want to be here. I need to be here. My heart is full of joy and gratitude. My soul is hungry for the Word and to be nourished by God's truth. My mind needs to be challenged with the deep things of God. My will needs to be motivated to walk in obedience. And so we sing, we listen, we participate, we fellowship, we feast at the table. Do we love to be here? Do we need to be here? You're here. Thank you. Continue to be committed. We could talk about prayer. This passage mentioned prayer a lot. But we've already talked about prayer being an essential mission of the church. And it is. We provide opportunities to pray together as part of that mission. But let's conclude with this, our fourth truth for this morning, and it's simply this. A Spirit-filled church loves to witness. A Spirit-filled church loves to witness. You see, if we were to take, if we were to talk about all the above things, all those things that we just talked about, and nothing more, we would present, we, I would present, an unbalanced inward Church, we can't forget about verse 47, the latter half. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Lord did the adding, He did the saving, but there was someone that was bearing witness. Someone's heart 
namely 3,000 hearts, were overflowing with joy, with gratitude that turned contagious when it hit someone who hadn't heard this news. And you say, oh, here it goes. Now he's going to tell me I need to be witnessing. I need to be uncomfortable. No, I'm not going to tell you that. Because how did this happen? How did this happen? It, it happens the same way it happened. It happened there the same way it happens today in a myriad of ways. Some were going door to door. Yes. Some were standing at Pike's Market preaching with a little speaker on their belt. Yes. But there were others who were quietly working on their families. Quietly seizing opportunities to speak of the hope that lies within. There were those who were living with integrity and joy, giving a reason. Giving a reason for those around them to ask, what is going on with you? What is different about you? You see, I think many of us, when we hear a point like this, we, we freak out. We, we start sweating. Because to us, witness equals evangelist. And you're not an evangelist. I'm not an evangelist. For some of us, witness equals outgoing and gregarious and uncomfortable door to door and winsome in every conversation about the gospel or about the things of God. And that's not necessarily what witness is. Witness is this, overflowing joy in Jesus. I mean, I know you have joy in Jesus, but is it all bottled up? Or does it ooze out? Does it ooze out in some ways? It doesn't have to ooze out in a track at someone's doorstep. It can. But overflowing joy in Jesus, a grace-filled, spirit-filled church, loves to witness. Loves to witness. Brothers and sisters, this this is who we are. This is the, the compass of Christianity, if you want to think of it that way. In every which direction, we, we have love for the Word. Oh, we need to love that Word as it inwardly builds us up and grows us up into salvation. We need to have love for one another horizontally. We need to be about love for God as we worship, as we gather in homes to pray, to worship, as we gather here in corporate praise and in corporate communion. And then we need to, we need to love the world. We need to let that overflow ooze out to our neighbors beyond the walls of the church. This is who we're about. This is who we are to be. May God give us grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this great picture, this this blueprint, so to speak, of the church that we find in Acts chapter 2. And Father, we know that we are stronger in some of these areas than others, both in an individual way as well as in a corporate identity. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us strength, to recognize 
what areas we can be grown in, that we can be stretched in. Not because we need your favor, but because we have your favor. Because we have the fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Because that love has overflowed to us, our desire is now that the love that's in us would overflow to others. Father, make it so for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.